My name is Alexander Olson, and I am trying to beat the often path with a company called Babylon Microfarms, and we build distributed vertical farming systems to help businesses and communities grow their own fresh food. How local is local enough when it comes to our food? We know that shipping a banana halfway around the world doesn't make any sense, but isn't local farm-to-table better? These are words we've been hearing a lot about lately. Wouldn't it be better if you could get your produce from a mile away from the grocery store or better yet, from inside the grocery store itself? So many places that currently import and transport food could potentially be growing that food themselves thanks to this innovative vertical hydroponic growing solution from Alexander Oleson and his company Babylon Micro Farms. He's been named Forbes 30 Under 30, he's received millions in funding for his idea so far, and the concept is relatively simple. What if places like IKEA that do tremendous volume of food sales could simply grow their food and their produce and their herbs inside the store instead of having anything shipped or imported at all? Wouldn't that be better? It has tremendous implications for places like hospitals, senior care, living places, and of course, grocery stores. All kinds of places could benefit from it. So it's an exciting concept. I can't wait for you to meet Alexander Olison, CEO of Babylon Microfarms. This is Beat the Often Path, and I'm Ross Palmer. Well, I like that candid honesty. First of all, thanks for joining me and that you're trying to beat the oven path. I like it. There's a sense of humility there. Um, how would you say that you're trying to beat it? In what sense are you in progress on this journey? Um, I guess in, in all senses. Um, sure. We are fortunate. So just coming up to my, my sixth work anniversary, and I've been working on this project uh, for over seven years now. Um, so, you know, there's definitely, it's, it's been a grind, but I think now, you know, we're a team of 35 people, we have distribution across North America and we're starting to really see that kind of commercial traction that is, is super exciting. Um, but you know, it is a day in day out pursuit of trying to make the, make the company, you know, take off. Yep. I understand it very well. Do you regret the decision to do it or are you still happy with the path that you're on? Oh my God. Absolutely. Um, very, very, very happy with it. Um, it is, it's all encompassing, but I think that that's what I signed up for. And I'm very fortunate to have a team around me who seem to have signed up for it as well, one way or another. And, and together we're, we're making things happen. Well, that's very fascinating. So what, what broadly speaking is the concept then? And what are you working on? And what was the original idea that sparked it all? Yeah, so hydroponic farming, for those that don't know, is growing plants in water instead of soil. Uh, it's a way of growing crops two to three times more quickly using 90% less water, no pesticides or chemicals. It is a much more sustainable and resource efficient way. And it also allows you to grow plants indoors. Uh, and so I was introduced to this concept through a project at the University of Virginia where I was studying. And um, we were basically looking at um, how to, do, to build these farms in refugee camps. And that was the original uh, project, part of the social entrepreneurship program. Um, and through that, I was like, well, micro farming is possible. You could actually do small scale farms and, uh, this could actually help people feed themselves or businesses to support themselves. And that was the original insight, you know, now six years ago or seven years ago. Um, we started looking at like, what would it take to do that here in the U S and so we ended up founding the company to build what is, we call a remote management platform. So it is an internet of things technology that allows us to run these farms remotely and in doing so, make them really easy to use so that people with no green thumb can be successful farmers. So that's the core technology. And then today we sell modular uh, vertical farms. They're about the size of a double door refrigerator uh, to food service operations. We work with like Ikea, LinkedIn, other places to grow vegetables on site that they can use in their food service operations. 
That's fabulous. Do you still do work with refugee camps? Is that something that's still a part of what you do or? It, it's core to where we want to be. Like at our core, we're trying to make hydroponic farming accessible to as many people as possible. And that's why we built the service and in, designed it in a way that you don't need expertise to do it. And we hope to apply that service to low cost systems. However, right now we are not doing that. Um, we just had to be like really ruthless about focusing. And right now, like we, we sort of use the Tesla analogy um, pretty often that, you know, we're really at the Tesla Roadster. We had to start somewhere. We had to make it desirable. And we've been very fortunate to find some great customers to scale up with. And the next step is really about developing lower cost systems that can take us back to our roots and, and help people address kind of more food security related issues. That makes sense. And of course, you know, hydroponics, if I may be very blunt, has been around in a certain industry, which is maybe easier to name in my state than some other states. Uh, so this knowledge has been around in some form or another for a considerable amount of time. But what has been the impetus to bring this to food? And what is the exciting part of this that hasn't been done before? Yeah, so the, the industry as a whole is going through a significant growth surge um, driven by, you know, the climate need for uh, innovation in agriculture around climate change primarily, but also some some much more tangible kind of technological development. So LED lights have allowed us to grow crops indoors at a fraction of the energy usage. That is a significant step forward. That's accelerating. Um, the use of kind of sensors and data processing has allowed us to do larger scale farms. Uh, and it's also allowed new models like what we do. Um, and so the combination of those two things are just making vertical farming more and more, indoor farming broadly, uh, more in demand. Um, we've, we've kind of ridden those um, tailwinds as well. Yeah, And on your website, you have a bunch of use cases, like you mentioned, of course, IKEA and some of the larger stores, but you also mentioned elderly homes. Uh, so where do you see this fitting in in general and who do you think should be using this and how will it change their lives? Yeah, so I think the common theme we see is engagement, right? And for um, across food service, you know, um, the standard is local and farm to table is no longer the kind of high end restaurant. It is the standard. That is the expectation that's been set. However, it's very hard for, for all businesses and communities to convey that. Um, with and, and so the micro farms help kind of serve an experiential need there, but we also grow high volumes of produce. Like we have a lot of communities that rely on the micro farm to provide all of their culinary hubs or all of their uh, salad greens. You know that's that's exciting for us from a self sufficiency point of view. But where we see a lot of impacts, especially like senior living homes, we have them doing um, therapy and activities. We have hospitals using it for like long term care. Um, we also work with like Goodwill uh, and other uh, nonprofits for workforce development. And that's basically training people how to grow their own food and then how to make a, make a meal with it. And so I think the farms really kind of serve as a tool there to both um, you know, educate and inspire the communities that they serve with how to actually grow your own food and what to do with it once you've harvested it. Yeah. Do you see this as being something that in the future will be entirely decentralized, that everybody everywhere or every business will be growing their own produce inside? I'd say that is the ideal state. I don't like Star know Trek if, <laughs> yeah, I think I think there are elements to it. Like I, we see ourselves as part of the solution, whereby um, you know, in the same way, some kitchen appliances were very niche and now they're mainstream. This is sort of in line with that. Where, um, yeah, it, as the use case becomes clearer and the costs start to line up as we scale, we scale up production, yeah, there's no reason why m most households couldn't have one of these in their house. And certainly, we our goal at the moment is strictly B two B, and we want every business to be growing their own because it's actually contributing to their overall sustainability efforts. 
One of the most interesting things that I have seen of this field is is hospitals and, like you said, uh, senior care. Because knowing, you know, all of my grandparents have now died, but they all spent their later years in either a hospital or a hospice. And knowing that the quality of the food there, I mean, it, it's just objectively terrible. And I'm talking about multiple different states, multiple different areas, even different countries. I've witnessed people in system and. The food quality that awaits you in our current system when you get to that stage of your life is abysmal. I'm talking about horrible stuff, processed foods, nothing healthy, nothing natural. Why do you think it is that the food is so bad currently, generally, in these types of environments where health should be the most important thing? I think there's a combination of, you know, education, both on the operator and the consumer side, and then also just, you know, some very real constraints around budget, right? A lot of the places they are dealing with whatever they can get that is has long shelf life and is easy to make, right? And that's why you have, that's why fast food and in, in your food deserts, these are things that these are constraints that people are dealing with. It's like, does it, is it easy and is it cheap? And that's the, that's the primary kind of driver for a lot of people, unfortunately. Um, in the hospitals we work with that are willing to allocate budget towards kind of healthier food and sourcing, we generally see that it, it's chefs and the operators there are educated in the fact that food is medicine and they're pushing that agenda. And I think that is a huge trend that is everywhere now um, and increasingly so. And so, so we, we benefit from that. But yeah, it really relies on the hospital itself or the chefs and the operators there to be like, no, food is medicine and we're going to prioritize nutritional nutrition as part of our kind of recovery and, and, and you know, programming within the hospital. Well, I hope that that takes hold because like I said, I was in a hospital relatively recently re visiting a friend of mine and I say, hey, I want some coffee. What are my options here? Well, they give you a styrofoam microwave cup of instant coffee and you think this is just horrible on so many levels. Is this really the best we can do? And the irony of that you're supposed to treat sick people with this stuff. It's just, it feels so wrong to me in those types of environments, especially. Whereas if you're fully healthy, well, hey, you can get away with putting some harmful chemicals in your body for a little while. But when you're already sick or immunocompromised, the idea that you are feeding yourself garbage, it just seems to be adding insult to injury, in my opinion. So like, why would these people not be educated then? Where... I get the uh, the desire to be as cheap as possible, of course, budget constraints. But in a world where a single pill can cost me $10,000, and if I spend a half hour in a hospital, they're going to send me a bill for many thousands of dollars, where is the budget constraint coming from in that type of setting, do you think? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. I guess it, it's really a prioritization issue, right? And I think food as medicine and the importance, the sort of somewhat obvious importance it, it has for human health is is often overlooked. And I think that that is changing fast, but um, it really kind of comes down to what are people trained on, how, how are the curriculums built, and a lot of them are not built around some of these kind of core pillars of human health around kind of what you eat and drink and, and your diet, right? Um, and that that's changing. Yeah. Thanks to people like you. Have you always been interested in health and food and sustainable business? I mean, you were in a program for social entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think it aligns a lot of personal passions. You know, I grew up in the UK around farming and uh, I did not want to go into farming, and but I was interested in technology startups and this sort of two led to get came together and same with my, my co-founder he was a biomedical engineer he was very interested in the inter intersection of kind of like human health and technology and you know together we started building and been doing that for the last seven years or so 
So we talk about on the show social entrepreneurship a lot. It's a term that I put as a hashtag in many of my posts. What do you think social entrepreneurship exactly means? How would you define it? Yeah, at its core, it's benefiting. Um, you know, it's it, it's the triple bottom line, right? So it's profit and purpose. Um, and so for us, you know, we are right trying to impact communities. We're trying to engage and inspire. And I think there's a kind of imp- a soft benefit there. In the long run, I, I I would like to implement something like really like kind of triple bottom line initiative, whether that's donating farms or working with kind of strategic partners to actually put farms in. But we need to get to a certain scale where we have the profits to reallocate. Um, so it's sort of one step in front of the other. In a world where so many businesses in general fail, I, we don't know the percentage. Some say 20, some say 50, some say more than that, where a lot of small businesses and startups fail in general. Do you think that it's choosing to make an already very difficult thing much harder to choose to be a social entrepreneur versus just trying to sell more T-shirts to people on YouTube? No, I actually think that the attitudes are shifting. Certainly when I look at like a lot of my contemporaries in the UK or the US, like people are putting like society first, right? And the triple bottom line is like, what was it? Planet, uh, profit and purpose, right? And so, or pe- people, planet and purpose uh, and profit. And so like really balancing those three things, if you think about like a sustainable company, you're not really, it's not a zero sum game. Right, and in the traditional sense, I think those companies—it seems antiquated to not be trying to reallocate some portion of your kind of company towards supporting those three things. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's really just the way things are going. I think some companies that have like a you know buy one donate one right model, which is is fantastic for the companies that do. You know that that only works in some cases, but to actually have a socially beneficial business, I think is is the way the way things are going. And it's that certainly not a zero sum game. I'm completely with you. And I have my doubts. OpenAI is in the news recently, uh, especially because ChatGPT is blowing up everywhere. And a lot of the things that those founders promised, they completely 180'd on very recently. They said, we're going to have an open thing. It's not going to be proprietary. We're not going to charge. They they had all of these values when they first started OpenAI. And then very recently they said, ah, never mind. It's going to be closed source and we're going to make money on it. They just completely abandoned those values. How hard do you think it is to keep one's values when more money enters the game or when success starts happening? Is it possible to keep that triple bottom line always? Or is that something that only new companies can afford to have? Yeah, no, you know, I can't speak to the open AI industry. Sure. I think with certain software, like it, there are technical challenges around like letting anyone come into it and you can still be open source and for profit. So that, there are sort of nuances there. But but yeah, there, there are stakeholders involved. And, and I think with all these things, as the money, uh, as the monetary upside becomes bigger, the pressures get greater to hang on to it, right? And so I think there is a cultural challenge there for any company that's trying to bake in from day one. That these this is important and really building culture on it so that hopefully when you do get to a scale that there are you know exciting upside there aren't too many people there who are trying to restrict that yeah that's that's the dream right well you've gotten to 35 people lots of ups and downs i imagine there have been many difficult moments as you alluded to at the beginning of this what's kept you going during some of the hardest moments how did you know that it was worth pursuing in the first couple of years 
Yeah, I think, you know, fortunately for what we're in an industry that's been growing very rapidly and we had a very different approach to it. So I think we've felt sort of a lot of confidence in the market that we were in from very early on. That says we've been iterating constantly. We continue to, right? You never kind of nailed it. Um, it's a constant evolution. And I just feel very lucky that we have such an inspiring team of, you know, engineers and, and, and salespeople and, and really across the board who, you know, help lift me up and, and I hope vice versa at times where we're really just trying to build this thing together. And, and there are a lot of people here who've been in it for several years. They've seen the ups and the downs and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Sure. What do you think the blueprint is? Because this is the most fascinating thing. And I've talked about this a bunch, but so many books, they gloss over the startup phase, especially if you read biographies or autobiographies, of, as I do, of wealthy people. You know, Read Warren Buffett, read whoever. And the first page is they were struggling, struggling, struggling. And then after they made their first million dollars, and then it just continues, and 90% of the book is after this mark in their life. But there's very little that's talked about this crucial phase of the, de the decision to start something in those early days for yourself and for other people who might want to do something, but they're not quite sure what, either they're in a job that they don't like working for a corporation that they don't believe in, or they're young and they're not quite sure what to do with their life. How do you concretely make steps towards making a company like this? Um, it's, it's hard to say because there's so, there's so much you don't know when you start. I think it's really just a commitment to showing up every day like day in, day out, rain or shine, and then also committing to learn around it. I think like me and my co-founder regularly talk about strong opinions, weekly held, right? It's the sort of willingness to charge at what you think is the right direction as hard as you can until new information becomes available and then change really quickly and be willing to. And I think that is a, takes, uh, you know, it's very hard to build a company around that and to for, for people to be that comfortable with change because it's, especially if they work, a lot of people who work to bigger companies, you don't have to deal with that kind of dynamic uh, culture, but you need to be able to deal with that to get a company off the ground. Yeah. And, and for you was the decision I'm going to do this while I'm working at another company or was it something you did on the side at so, first? Yeah. So it kind of like we, it was at a point where I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Um, as I think the same for my co-founder and we, we had a year at, while we we're at college where we could basically spend all of our time trying to prototype, build these things, apply for grants and, um, you know, it just worked. You know, we we kept winning different competitions, prototypes. Oh, we we had cool. some early sales, um, but it was you know it was slow and it was very up and down. But it was there was that kind of year of tinkering where we were still at school, so the, the stakes were very low. Um, and then when it came to, we got into an accelerator program and decided to go full time, and that was that was it. And yeah, you definitely feel. Um, feel it when you're like, okay, I have nothing to do every single day now, 24 seven, except this company. And I think that can be very motivating if you're willing to take the plunge. That's fascinating. Do you think that school is a good bubble or insulator from some of the kind of pressures that a startup might face if they weren't shielded by a school environment in that first year? Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and I think you see that right across all of these university sort of systems that incubating startups and i think they're for they're, all the resources are there you just have to connect the dots right from pitch competitions to engineers to business schools like you name it like uva i was benefit we benefited at the time from the university having a lot of new programs available we did all of them you know <laughs> try and just get out there as much as we could and i think you know uva is certainly not alone in that right most major colleges are 
pursuing some kind of path like that. So um, if you have a bit of momentum and you're willing to go talk to people, usually all of the resources are laid out for you uh, within the kind of education system. And if you hadn't won those awards, what do you think you might have done? What if you hadn't been building momentum in that first year? I, I, don't, I try not to think about it. You don't even know. Yeah, it could be anything. You could be working in a bank right now. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but you've also taken an international plunge in your personal life. You've gone from the UK to the United States. How has that journey been for you? Do you anticipate staying in the United States for an extended period of time? Do you ever think you'll go back? Uh, it's tough. You know, all of my family are back in the UK. So I go back uh, um, as much as I can. And, you know, I'd love to get back eventually. It's it's hard to say, though. You know, I've, I felt fortunate to have spent time at college here. So I had a little bit of edu you know, education network. That's why I ended up in Virginia. Um and you know, for for now, I think the U.S. is fantastic. It's certainly the best country in the world for startups, and I think for the industry I'm in, it's a very exciting place to be. Uh, but you know, London and the U.K. has a lot going for it, so I would love to get back there at some point soon. Although I have heard that they might have a shortage of produce, so maybe you can help them out with your ideas. I think I, I've heard that too. <laughs> Don't know why though; it's a mystery. I think they they import much more than they want to. <laughs> Do you think that this could be a solution for countries that rely on imports for these types of things? I mean, certainly the state that I'm in, California, we export, export so much produce to the rest of the United States. Do you think that this could change that dynamic if more places were able to grow their produce locally? Yeah, I think what we do is a very specific application of controlled environment agriculture, but the industry as a whole is definitely a viable um tool in our toolkit to solve or, or to create a more climate resilient food system. So um, you're going to see across the world, green, greenhouses, plant factories, modular systems like ours spring up as a way of providing food locally year round in a way that's climate resilient. That That is happening now. That's kind of the whole industry growth. It's why people are really excited about it. Um, and there's going to be a huge acceleration of that, right? You see what's going on, climate change, whether it's drought or rain, both of which can be very bad for crops. You know, indoors is a useful tool, but but there are some limitations to it, right? You're not going to see potatoes and row crops growing indoors, but for certain leafy greens, some fruits and, and vine crops, it's a very, very effective way of growing food. What do you think the risk is if we do nothing with these problems? What's the problem as you see it? And what's the risk of taking no action? Um, I think it's you know uh, being prepared is 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 the only way to be, um, and I think that when you see tools becoming available, whether it's renewable energy through the indoor farming, like adopting them is is really one of the most viable paths forward to creating a more resilient future. Hmm. But uh, what would be the, when you say resilient, I guess I just want to dive in a little bit because I think people like you and me who have been immersed in this for a bit longer, we sort of have an innate sense of these issues and certainly from my conversations I do. But what is the problem or the risk or what is the fear? What does lack of resilience mean for humanity in the next few decades with regards to food? Well, if you look at the system today in the U.S., we for lettuce alone, you know, it's shipped ninety-five percent of it's shipped from a couple of counties in California to the West Coast. You're looking at fifty-plus percent uh, wastage. It's hugely inefficient, and you're ultimately leading to a, you know, a, a worse product for consumers. And that's a luxury in the U.S. in the Western world that you can do that. But in a lot of parts of the world, they're living. Uh, you know, the, the food supply chain is very, very fragile. 
Uh, and so crop failures can lead to kind of mass famine. I don't know where indoor farming fits in that in solving that, but I think creating systems that are resilient and sustainable is the the way things are moving, and it, and it has to accelerate. And you know, creating tools like what we do is is one of many parts of that. Yeah, that's right. And do you think that the system, because there are some people I know who believe that if we just continue doing everything as we've been doing it, everything will be fine. Has that changed? What has changed in recent years to make us believe that it's not going to be fine? Yeah, it's an, I think you have to be living under a rock not to see the climate changing, right? And I would that argue that 60% you... of the internet is living under a rock of willful uh, ignorance. Yeah, well... Well, no, you know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. The climate's changing, and that has a wide range of effects, right? It could be more rain, it could be less rain, it could be uh, storms, you, you name it. But either way, things that are fragile, like the plants outside that we rely on to eat, um, need to be looked after. And I think that is where the need for innovation comes in, right? And that climate tech broadly, of which controlled environment ag is one small piece of the puzzle, is is one of the tools available right and i think that's where why you're seeing a lot of acceleration in that to hopefully create a future where everyone can have you know um a roof over their head and and you know of of healthy food in front of them i would love to see that future myself seven years deep into this project was there a moment where you felt really good about what you were doing was there a really a moment where you felt like you were really on to something Yeah, it's interesting. I would say this, the problems or the the workload scales like inexorably. So it definitely doesn't get easier, which is is it's an interesting religion. You know, I've, I'm rewarded every day by the you know people I work with, the products we have, and and we have some amazing clients. I think that um, seeing adoption by whether Fortune 500 companies or whoever it might be, that is incredibly rewarding and validating. Uh, but you know, there's still a long way to go. So I, I'm not sure. patting myself on the back yet. You mentioned IKEA. They seem to be a rather forward-thinking brand, me being somewhat ignorant. Uh, are they a current partner of yours or a desired future partner? They, they, they are to... a current partner, okay. um, and you know they have food service operations in all of their stores. Right? You right. can go and get your Swedish meatballs, and if you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can go and get some Swedish meatballs with dill sprinkled on it from a microphone. Uh, and that's a that's a new initiative that we're testing with them that I hope to expand. But yeah, they're looking at it very much from a sustainability angle. Like, how can they be self sufficient in some of their herbs and other ingredients? Could they even grow them on site? And that's where we come in. That was such a wonderful idea, and I was shocked to learn some years ago that IKEA they had a vegan version of their famous hot dog, they have vegan version of their ice cream that people get, and a lot of their food. I think even. The Swedish meatballs, if I'm not mistaken, they have another version of us now. So it seems like they're definitely pushing the envelope. Um, it's awesome that they're excited in this. I'm excited because who knows how much stuff they must deliver an enormous amount of food per store per day. It's got to be ridiculous. Yeah, definitely, definitely pretty high volume. Yeah. And so we talk about sustainable energy and using 90% less water. To what degree can these types of systems be fueled by solar energy and to have very minimal inputs? Yeah, I think that sort of it is the Achilles heel of vertical farming specifically is the energy usage is high, which of course can be offset with renewables. But generally speaking, the renewable requirement, you know, it's pretty large area. Um, you know, certainly the, it's very popular in greenhouses where you have a sort of combination of artificial lighting and sunlight 
that you would have uh, renewables, and that's being proven to be very effective. But yeah, again, it's kind of all part of where it's heading, right? It's energy, it's food, it's water. How do they all relate? How do you create these efficient systems that, that feed off one another? That makes sense. And do you pay attention to the types of chemical or inputs that you use to create this? Because as I understand it, and maybe this is a stupid question, but there's a wide range of the types of inputs that you can put into a hydroponic farm, some worse than others, both for human consumption and possibly the environment. Yeah, we, we have our own uh, proprietary blends and we, we take care of all of that. And can you shed some light on to what makes it different without going into specifics? Uh, not very easily. Okay. Um, but no, there's a lot of science that goes into it. And you know, we basically having a clean and waste-free hydroponic system is the goal for us. And so across the board, we're trying to use kind of as environmentally friendly inputs as we can. Is it possible to be organic and do it is possible, but okay. also not for organic is an interesting one because it's sort of a, a paid certification. Right. Um, and so for our purposes, it doesn't make sense, but uh, for others, it may. Okay. So what, uh, what do you feel then is important with regards to the types of inputs that people might not be aware of? Um, it is, okay, just if we, we, for our purposes, which is very different to the industry, it's about controlling the input so you can give reliable output. If you're going to buy a microphone, you better have reliable high pro product that is much higher quality than what you can get from the stores. Um, and that's really why we try to control those inputs. So seed genetics through the nutrients environment, whatever it might be, we're controlling that so that we can try and give a much higher quality product to the end consumer. And that justifies their investment in a microphone. Makes sense to me. Well, I'm very ignorant. I kill every plant that I've ever tried to have. I'm sure many people have said that to you. So what does it take for me? You said it's controllable. Obviously, that assumes that there's some sort of software. You control the inputs. So if I wanted to have this in my business, what do I need to do and how long would it take before I could actually have a steady stream of these herbs or lettuce or plants? Yes, we, we have uh, about four week, four to six week lead time here in the US. Um, we just need someone with water and electricity. Uh, and yeah, we, we set up a demo, show you what we do, and then um, try and set you up on an indoor farming program. That's fantastic. And what has been the response so far? When, because obviously business owners don't want to spend money on anything generally unless they absolutely have to. What's been the thing that has helped you convince them to take the leap or the people who are uncertain, maybe what is the angle that works best for you? Um, I think, you know, broadly speaking, every business we're working with and hopefully every business in the world soon will be trying to pursue some kind of sustainable sustainability initiatives. Right. And food is often one of the primary touch points with their end consumer and their community, whether that's in healthcare, education, you name it, food is one of the key kind of vehicles to convey what they're doing. And so that's where we come in. Uh, and so, yeah, all of our clients are pushing for more sustainable and local options. Um, and we found some great kind of segments that we're scaling up in. But as I said, I hope over time that will be all businesses are yes. pursuing similar goals. Sure. And, you know, we talk about grocery stores and many movies and documentaries have been made on the idea of, oh, how far does it take a banana to get to you in your local grocery store? Why don't grocery stores just implement this? Why doesn't every grocery store make all of this type of thing in the store? Why does it ever come from somewhere else? They, they can and they will. Uh, that is the, the future. It's quite popular in Europe and Asia at the moment, units very similar to ours. 
Um, there are some there are some challenges around the business model and economics. That's stuff we're really working to address. But that is part of the future: is the indoor farms being kind of co-located with distribution centers and, and grocery stores. Yeah, because that drives me crazy. It's you've got this row of produce, and it's all, especially here. Again, I know that Europe is a little bit better, but here it's all in this very thick single-use plastic packaging. You can buy spinach, you can buy lettuce, and because we're all worried about salmonella and other diseases, it's in a very thick plastic tub, which is just ridiculous. And the idea that you take this out and you throw that away instantly, it just all feels so horrible, especially knowing that it's been shipped in from somewhere else. So why not just replace all of that with stuff that's just grown in the store with no packaging whatsoever, and then that's just solved? That's right. Yeah. So you're like, this is what I'm working on. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think it's feasible? I mean, you mentioned, we know that scale and unit economics, that these things improve with time. What would be a wild best case scenario there? Do you think that's something that could happen in five, 10 years, 30 years? I mean, Oh yeah. Yeah. Five, five, 10 years is definitely is. And we, we see kind of line of sight with our manufacturing to, you know, in, in, in two or three years to be at a point where we could save people money across most major produce categories. Okay. Uh, and you're still going to have constraints around labor, real estate, other things, but at least the economics around like your lettuce, your herbs, a lot of the major categories are you're clearly more, they're better for the consumer and the, the economics make sense for the buyer. That's going to drive adoption. And you have been spreading this message. You've been, a, you've, you've spoken at TEDx, right? You've spoken about this message. You've also yeah, so, been. Uh, did- nominated to Forbes 30 under 30, which is huge. So congratulations, right? Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's cool to see some you know recognition for it. And you know, I, I think it's testament to the team and everyone here that, that we're just finally you know reaching some scale and getting these farms out the door. You know, I, hate, I, I interview so many people from Forbes 30 under 30. I've got to stop doing it because it makes me feel old and stupid. That's the thing. It's just like, <laughs> oh, great. Another one of you guys. Just <laughs> <laughs> But it, you've achieved some remarkable things. It's 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 truly incredible. Um, so what what message would you want people to say when you do give a speech or if you give a talk? What is the main point that you're trying to get everybody to know? Um, with regards to indoor farming, I think it's bit bigger is bigger is not always better, and that actually tailored solutions for businesses and communities have a lot of can have a lot of impact, and actually growing some of your food uh, that in a way that could, actually touches all of your community can have an outsized impact on the overall consumption. So like we see this like a small micro farming initiative at a university can actually drive um, plant-based food consumption, salad green consumption across all their different menu items. And I think that's so exciting for people to realize that these small initiatives can have a significant impact. And, you know, hopefully that's something that resonates with people to, to explore doing this, whether that's in their own community or in, in their own business. And do you want to fight for these values for the rest of your career? Is this a temporary thing that you think I'm just trying to build and sell this business? Or is this something that's part of a greater personal mission for you? Um, we'll see. I think, you know, for me, I want to build a portfolio of different sustainable technology companies. Uh, and I have on is, is the first of many, I hope. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you have any uh, in- indicators of where you might like to head or what spaces are interesting to you? I've uh, all, all my eggs in one basket right now, okay. so I am um, I'm right. fully committed to indoor farming. Yes, that's uh, well, that's that's more than good enough. Um, what types of industries do you think are the most archaic when it comes to? Uh, I guess we could or like within within your world, what is the worst part of 
traditional farming or the traditional system? It's, it's such a question because it's such a big industry, right? It touches every corner of the globe in, in different ways. I uh, It's almost impossible to answer and you could spend hours on, on that answer question. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of advances in mechanization and robotics. It's really exciting. So a lot of the manual tasks are getting automated. Um, but yeah, I actually think a lot of the ways that we fertilize food, right, and it's not antiquated because it's only been around since the 50s, but that's, you know, ammonia and some of urea, some of the ways that the the synthetic fertilizers are huge contributors to climate change. They're also driving a lot of um, runoff that's you know, polluting waterways and in, in, in the ocean. So I think there's a lot of room for innovation there. Uh, so excited. To, that's not, not my area of focus, but I'm very right. excited to watch that space. And aren't there sh certain shortages of certain of these uh, types of fertilizers as well? There, there are various, you know, there's a limited supply of certain amounts of these chemicals. And once they just drift into the ocean and they sink to the bottom, it's extremely hard to recover some, right? Uh, yeah, uh, to, of, of kind of. They, they, there's, there's, they, they require, you know, it's chemical process to make them, right? So you need consistent supply. And I think we saw with the, you know, the, the situation in Ukraine, um, Sometimes these supplies can be, you can run out or, or someone else controls the supply and then you can't make any more. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there are a lot of restrictions there. So coming up with organically or naturally synthesized fertilizers that are, that are not kind of fossil fuel based is, is, is of paramount importance. Does everybody on your team feel as passionately about this, do you think, as you do? I I hope so. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, this is a test. To what, ex to what extent? This, there, has, um, there will be a test. Uh, yeah, I know. I did. I, I, and I think we're very fortunate to have attracted a group of people that really believe in, you know, health, building a healthy and sustainable future. And, uh, yeah, I think there's definitely a shared passion for it, although to varying degrees. Does it uh, pull you forward to have a team and to be inspired when the going gets tough? Does it help you knowing that there are other people who are fighting alongside you? Absolutely. Every day. Yeah. What are some of the tough challenges that you face personally and with the business? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's in, you know, where, where to begin, right? I think it's just blocking and tackling, showing up every day, uh, trying not to think too much about the challenges. Mm -hmm. Has there been a moment that you thought was particularly hilarious? Anything that's been a funny? How about in the last week? Has something interesting happened? Not that I can think of. Can we did design it. We our original prototype didn't fit through a door. Okay, and that was a big oversight. So you built it in some kind of room, and you couldn't fit it. You yeah. couldn't get it out of the room. <laughs> so, like, we thought of everything except that. What did you do? <laughs> we had to design it to be uh, shipped like in a funny way that, <laughs> and then like assembled on site, which was a real pain in the. Was that end. first? What was it? A lost cause. Was that no, one no, abandoned, we actually did, or did we you dismantle it and rebuild it? And so, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was a whole thing. Oh my goodness, that's funny. It's like those little things that you can't predict when you're starting a business. Those little tiny things. Oh yeah, somebody's got to actually see it. If you want to see it, come check it out. Come visit us. We'll be happy to show it to you. But we can't bring it anywhere else. <laughs> nice. So I know you're sort of in the middle of this, but if everything went amazingly. What would, for you personally in the company, the best five years possible from this moment be? 
Uh, yeah, I think, you know, right now we're seeing accelerating adoption across like kind of healthcare, higher education and um, the corporate dining spaces and then a few others like retail. So I, I think just seeing us get to, you know, the 500 and then eventually the 1,000 microfarm mark, I think that's kind of well within the five-year range and that's uh, that's where we're heading. Wow, okay. And do you believe that that's, are you on track? Uh, we're, we're getting there, yeah. Yeah, Nice. Fabulous. Okay. Well, what advice do you have then for people who are starting out or who are thinking about going to school or who may want to take the plunge, but they're not sure what they should do with their life or how they can get plugged into a greater mission than what they're currently in? Um, you know, I think you, the resources, are you, especially if you're in school, the resources, there are a lot of resources around you, which you should take a of and just, just start. Uh, I know I think people say that a lot, but it really is just start doing stuff and, and get some momentum behind you and one thing will lead to another. Do you believe that you need investment to launch a business like this? Like you said, a grant or uh, something external. Is it possible to do it by yourself? Yeah, I actually think almost all these things are possible. I think with our business, there's definitely seed like funding, but, but other than that, like, you know, being resourceful, you can do a lot of things with very little money, and I think it can make you a lot leaner. We uh, didn't go down that path, but you know, I think um, climate tech broadly and things that have hardware and software, it, it, it is more challenging to do that in a bootstrap way. That makes perfect sense. Okay, well, thank you very much for for sitting and for sharing all of these stories. It's a very fabulous concept. Uh, I'd encourage everybody to check out the website. It's very very interesting. Um, before we wrap things up here, is there anything that you would like to say or to promote or where can people support your work and see what you're doing and maybe even be a part of it if they want to join your team? Yeah, well, hey, that thanks for having me on. I'd say check us out at babylonmicrofarms.com. Uh, we're pretty active on Instagram and on LinkedIn. All right, sounds good. And with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.